The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 3, The Guillotine, Book 3, The Girondins, Chapter 3, Growing Shrill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Peter Dan. Book 3, Chapter 3, Growing Shrill. On the whole, one cannot say that the Girondins are wanting to themselves so far as goodwill might go. They prick assiduously into the sore places of the mountain, from principle and also from Jesuitism. Besides September, of which there is now little to be made except effervescence, we discern two sore places where the mountain often suffers, Marat and Orléans à Galité. Squalid Marat, for his own sake and for the mountains, is assaulted ever and anon, held up to France as a squalid, bloodthirsty portent, inciting to the pillage of shops, of whom let the mountain have the credit. The mountain murmurs ill at ease. This maximum of patriotism, how shall they either own him or disown him? As for Marat personally, he, with his fixed idea, remains invulnerable to such things. Nay, the people's friend is very evidently rising in importance as his befriended people rises. No shrieks now when he goes to speak, occasional applauses rather, furtherance which breeds confidence. The day when the Girondins proposed to decree him accused, décreté d'accusation as they phrase it, for that February paragraph of hanging up a forestaller or two at the door lintels, Marat proposes to have them decreed insane, and descending the tribune steps is heard to articulate these most unsenatorial ejaculations. Les cochons, les imbeciles! Pigs, idiots! Oftentimes he croaks harsh sarcasm, having really a rough rasping tongue, and a very deep fund of contempt for fine outsides, and once or twice he even laughs, nay, explodes into laughter, rio éclat, at the gentilities and superfine airs of these Girondin men of statesmanship, with their pedantries, plausibilities, pusillanimities. These two years, says he, you have been whining about attacks and plots and dangers from Paris, and you have not a scratch to show for yourselves. Danton gruffly rebukes him from time to time, a maximum of patriotism whom one can neither own nor disown. But the second sore place of the mountain is this anomalous Monseigneur Equality Prince d'Orléans. Behold these men, says the Gironde, with a whilom Bourbon prince among them. They are creatures of the d'Orléans faction. They will have Philippe made king, one king no sooner guillotined than another made in his stead. Girondins have moved, Buzot moved long ago, from principle and also from Jesuitism, that the whole race of Bourbon should be marched forth from the soil of France, this Prince Egalité, to bring up the rear. Motions which might produce some effect on the public, which the mountain, ill at ease, knows not what to do with. And poor Orléans Egalité himself, for one begins to pity even him, what does he do with them? the disowned of all parties, the rejected and foolishly bedrifted hither and thither, to what corner of nature can he now drift with advantage? Feasible hope remains not for him. Unfeasible hope, in pallid doubtful glimmers, there may still come, bewildering, not cheering or illuminating, from the Dumouriez quarter. 
And how, if not the time-wasted Orléans Egalité, then perhaps the young unworn Chartres Egalité might rise to be a kind of king? Sheltered, if shelter it be, in the clefts of the mountain, poor Egalité will wait. One refuge in Jacobinism, one in Dumouriez and counter-revolution. Are there not two chances? However, the look of him, Dame Jeanne says, is grown gloomy, sad to see. See Yuri also, the Jeanne's husband, who hovers about the mountain, not on it, is in a bad way. Dame Jeanne has come to Rancy, out of England, and Berry St. Edmunds in these days, being summoned by Egalité with her young charge, Mademoiselle Egalité, so that Mademoiselle might not be counted among emigrants and hardly dealt with. But it proves a ravelled business. Jean-Lee and Charge find that they must retire to the Netherlands, must wait on the frontiers for a week or two, till Monseigneur, by Jacobin help, get it wound up. Next morning, says Dame Jean-Lee, Monseigneur, gloomier than ever, gave me his arm to lead me to the carriage. I was greatly troubled. Mademoiselle burst into tears. Her father was pale and trembling. After I had got seated, he stood immovable at the carriage door with his eyes fixed on me. His mournful and painful look seemed to implore pity. Adieu, madame, said he. The altered sound of his voice completely overcame me. Not able to utter a word, I held out my hand. He grasped it close, then turning and advancing sharply towards the postilions, he gave them a sign, and we rolled away. Nor are peacemakers wanting, of whom likewise we mention two, one fast on the crown of the mountain, the other not yet alighted anywhere. Danton and Barrère. Ingenious Barrère, old constituent and editor from the slopes of the Pyrenees, is one of the usefulest men of this convention in his way. Truth may lie on both sides, on either side or on neither side. My friends, ye must give and take, for the rest success to the winning side. This is the motto of Barrère. Ingenious, almost genial, quick-sighted, supple, graceful, a man that will prosper. Scarcely Belial in the assembled pandemonium was plausible to ear and eye. An indispensable man, in the great art of varnish, he may be said to seek his fellow. Has there an explosion arisen, as many do arise, a confusion, unsightliness, which no tongue can speak of, nor eye look on? Give it to Barère. Barère shall be committee reporter of it. You shall see it transmute itself into a regularity, into the very beauty and improvement that was needed. Without one such man, we say, how are this convention bested? Call him not, as exaggerative Messier does, the greatest liar in France. Nay, it may be argued that there is not truth enough in him to make a real lie of. Call him, with Burke, Anacreon of the guillotine, and a man serviceable to this convention. The other peacemaker whom we name is Danton. Peace, oh peace with one another, cries Danton often enough. Are we not alone against the world, a little band of brothers? Broad Danton is loved by all the mountain, but they think him too easy-tempered, deficient in suspicion. He has stood between Dumouriez and much censure, anxious not to exasperate our only general. In the shrill tumult, Danton's strong voice reverberates for union and pacification. 
meetings there are, dinings with the Girondins. It is so pressingly essential that there be union. But the Girondins are haughty and respectable. This Titan Danton is not a man of formulas, and there rests on him a shadow of September. Your Girondins have no confidence in me. This is the answer a conciliatory Mayon gets from him. To all the arguments and pleadings this conciliatory Mayon can bring, the repeated answer is, Ils n'ont point de confiance. The tumult will get even shriller. The rage is growing pale. In fact, what a pang is it to the heart of a Girondin, this first withering probability that the despicable, unphilosophic, anarchic mountain, after all, may triumph. Brutal Septembers, a fifth-floor Italian, a Robespierre without an idea in his head, as Condorcet says, or a feeling in his heart, and yet we, the flower of France, cannot stand against them. Behold, the sceptre departs from us, from us and goes to them. Eloquence, philosophism, respectability avail not. Against stupidity, the very gods fight to no purpose. Mit der Dimmheit kämpfen Gottes selbst vergebens. Shrill are the plaints of Louvet, his thin existence all acidified into rage and preternatural insight of suspicion. Wrath is young Barbaru, wrath and scornful. Silent like a queen with an aspic on her bosom sits the wife of Roland. Roland's accounts never yet got audited, his name become a byword. Such is the fortune of war, especially of revolution. The great gulf of Tophet and 10th of August opened itself at the magic of your eloquent voice, and lo, now it will not close at your voice. It is a dangerous thing, such magic. The magician's famulus got hold of the forbidden book and summoned a goblin. Plate deal, what is your will? said the goblin. The famulus, somewhat struck, bade him fetch water. The swift goblin fetched it, pale in each hand, but lo, would not cease fetching it. Desperate, the famulus shrieks at him, smites at him, cuts him in two. Lo, two goblin water carriers ply, and the house will be swum away in Deucalion deluges. End of Book 3, Chapter 3